Welcome to episode 10 of the George Sanders Show. Today we will be discussing the new release from Wong Kar Wai, The Grand Master. Uh, we'll also be talking about probably a little bit of the controversy surrounding the film, uh, at least at its release in the States. And we're pairing it with A Touch of Zen from 1971, uh, director King Hu's film. Uh, we'll also be discussing the career of Wong Kar Wai and picking our cinema essential fight scenes. With me as always is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Hello, Mike. I'm pounding a summer can of Coke, because I've been up since 5 in the morning, and I say let's just start this baby right with the little talk about the Grandmaster. Okay, that was a clip from Wong Kar Wai's new film, The Grand Master. The film is opening here in the States uh, this month, and uh, we are actually talking about the 130-minute international cut of the film. Um, we will get into a discussion about, you know, what the we've heard. The various versions. Yeah, the, the various film. versions that are floating out there of this film and why we ended up picking the uh, international cut. Uh, the film is ostensibly, and it's being sold as, you know, the story of Ip Man, the uh, famed Kung Fu practitioner who famously taught Bruce Lee and kind of popularized uh, martial arts. And then, obviously, Bruce Lee then popularized it even more further on down the line. The film stars uh, Tony Lung as Ip Man and uh, Zhang Zi as Gong Air, the daughter of um, another famed Kung Fu practitioner um, from a previous generation. The film has been sold as a biopic, um, and they're, you know this is not the first film to follow this character. There's been that... Is it a trilogy now? Uh, there's actually four other Ip Man movies that have come out in the last five years. There's there's two by Wilson Yip and two by Herman Lau. Yeah. Uh, the fourth one, the the second Herman Yao film, just came out this year, and I hear it's really good, but I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. I haven't seen those movies either, and so... But I, I assume they're more conventionally a biopic, because this movie... Is let's not. get into it. Let's just get into it, sure. It's not a biopic at all. Or at, at least it's not about Ip Man. Yeah, opinion. it's it's a biopic about about Gong Air more than it is about mm-hmm. about Ip Man. That that actually took me by surprise. Like this this movie was not what I expected it to be, and I should have known that going in because 
it's a Wong Kar Wai movie, and Wong Kar Wai doesn't make movies that are what you expect them to be. But nonetheless, I was like, hey, that's a, it's another Ip Man biopic starring Tony Wong, yay. Yes. But really, um, as is often the case in Wong Kar Wai movies, it's Ip Man telling somebody else's story, and we get the Ip Man's interpretation of his own life through the lens of somebody else's life, a, a story that he recounts. And so basically, Ip Man is telling us his life story, and it chronicles the major events in his life. He grows up, he gets married, he... Uh, you know, suffers during the war, he moves to Hong Kong and starts a school. But the actual meaning of it is filtered through his interactions with Gong Air and his view of her story, which is a story about this rivalry between her and uh, another of her father's students for the uh, the legacy of her right. father's style of kung fu. The heir to the throne, as it were. And that story <laughs> becomes metaphorical for Ip as... Uh, um, as an embodiment of the transmission of Chinese culture through the Japanese occupation and through the, the kind of westernization and, and uh, refugee status that he finds in Hong Kong. And for me, you know, I was on board when I, you know, heard just, you know, Wang Kar-wai doing Ip Man, uh, starring Tony Long. I was like, I'm there, it's going to be awesome. But I am so glad that he pulled a bait and switch here. Um, I really am, because I found this story so much more fascinating than I think a traditional, obviously a traditional biopic would be. Um, that, and, of course, like you said, a Wong Kar Wai biopic uh, would never follow those, you know, tried and true, you know... Major story major, points. Yeah, yeah, major story points. And so I was, yeah, once I realized what was happening with this thing, I was like, oh, this is great. This is a treat, you know? It took me a long, a long time to realize that, like, I, I did not watch this movie under ideal viewing conditions. Like, I really wish I could see the, the full 130-minute cut in a theater. Uh, instead, I watched it on a laptop with the little five-month-old baby kind of squirming next to me, so I was kind of distracted. So it took me a long time to kind of get where it was going. But once I did, I was able to, like, settle in and really enjoy it. But, you know, I, I was a little confused for the first, you know, hour or so of the movie, mm-hmm. But, you know, I have enough enough faith in, in Wong Kar Wai that he knows what he's doing. And so I was like, I'm willing to, to go wherever he's going to take me. And it paid off. As, oh, but man, it paid yeah. off. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I felt the same way. And I, I too, saw it under the similar circumstances, uh, swap out a five-month-old baby for a five-year-old dog. But, you know, I... They're pretty much the same. They're pretty much the same. And I watched it um, at, you know, 5.30 in the morning, which is not ideal. Um, and then... In particular, you know, I hate watching movies on a laptop or, a, you know, iPad or whatever. You know, the bigger the screen, the better. Absolutely. Um, so the bigger the screen, the better for me. And I tried in vain for a couple of days trying to hook the laptop up to my new TV, but I had the wrong cables and it was, it was a disaster in the making and it didn't end up working out. But this movie in particular, I wish I could see on the big screen of, of you know, recent films that are coming out or whatever. Um, it's just, I mean, Wong Kar Wai doing Kung Fu stuff is just going to be the most beautiful Kung Fu you've ever seen in your life. And seriously, I mean, I haven't seen as many, you know, martial arts films as you have, not even close. But this is, to me, this is the prettiest Kung Fu movie I've ever seen in my life. Even watching it on a 13-inch MacBook, it's absolutely gorgeous. I, I don't know that I quite go that far. It is it is a very beautiful movie. I it's but it's beautiful in a different way than like like Jang Yimou's 
kung fu movies. I was like, going to bring uh, up like Hero and Hero and House of Flying Daggers, and also uh, the third one that isn't as good. Uh, a woman, a gun, and a noodle shop. No, the, uh, <laughs> the one with with Chai and Fat, Curse and, of the and, yeah, Curse, Curse of, the, of the Golden Flower, Jade Scorpion. Yeah, Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I think Helen Hunt's in that. A lot of the effects are similar, uh, in particular, like the raindrop effects in the in the opening fight sequence, and then in some others, um, it's very similar to the scene in in Hero with uh, with Donnie Donnie Yen and Jet Li. But one thing that makes the Grandmaster unique is is the the kind of lack of color. Like the mm-hmm. distinctive thing about the Zhang Yimou films is that they are so colorful, and so many of the fight scenes are are built around a, a particular clash between colors, like red and yellow, or green and blue. And, but uh, the Grandmaster is all black and white. Mm-hmm. Like uh, uh, Tony Lung is is wearing like a white like straw fedora or something with like an all black kind of robe outfit and most of the people he fights are also wearing all black so it's a very monochromatic look to the film and I thought that was uh, an interesting choice for Wong Kar Wai who is also noted for his his use of color and makes very very colorful very striking films to, to have it be muted like this and I think that is exemplified in you know throughout the film um, there are these scenes where a picture will be taken and the, the camera will be, uh, you know, a static shot, you know, ostensibly the photo being taken and it'll slowly turn into black and white, like literal black and white. Yeah. But it's so, such a subtle change that it really shows that the color palette is so muted. You know, you don't, you don't really notice it at first and it's just like, oh, this just, you know, casually went into this black and white and it's, um, but for me, why, the reason I think it's the most beautiful is I like the Zhang Yimou films probably not as much as you do. I know you're a big fan of those. Um, I liked Hero and I liked House of Flying Daggers. I didn't see the third one, but there's a there's a poetry to Wong Kar Wai that you're not going to get in those movies. Those movies, you know, pause it, put it on the wall, frame it. You know, it's gorgeous to look at. But when I say beautiful, I mean it's just every movement. You know, and and this is another thing is um, Wong Kar Wai takes as much time filming. The preparation of a move, you know, you see a lot of like feet getting into the stances, and he and he spends as much time on that as he does the actual like contact of you know fist hitting something or or whatever. And then he also films the after effects or, or films from unique angles. You know, you'll see someone hit a board, and you'll see like the the nails on the board shake or something like that. It's a totally different approach to his previous martial arts movie, um, Ashes of Time. Which I, I don't know. If I have not seen Ashes of Time. Yeah. Basically, when you're talking about about Chinese martial arts movies, there there are two kinds. There are swordplay movies, and there are boxing movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grandmaster is a is a boxing movie, and then those movies tend to be more realistic, to to be more kind of focused on like the actual styles, and they're directed by like former stuntmen like Lau Kar Lung or Jackie Chan or or, or Sammo Hung. And they're very particular about, like, the actual movements and showing the details of the performance of the actor. Whereas swordplay movies are more spectacular. They're more, they have, like, people flying around, and and some of them, they'll, they'll, like, shoot chi energy out of their hands and cause explosions. And they're more kind of just crazy, anything-goes kind of superheroic movies. And, you know, this is all you know, a, a spectrum. There are, you know, boxing movies that have supernatural effects, and there are swordplay movies that are more sure. realistic. But just generally speaking, there's, like, your boxing movies and your swordplay films. Ashes of Time is a, a swordplay movie, and he films his action scenes with a really kind of blurry motion, with a lot of slow motion, where it's really hard to kind of make out the details. The choreography is very intricate. It's by Sammo Hung, 
And if you're, if you, you know, pay close attention, you can actually see really well coordinated, really beautiful movements that the actors are going through. But Wong and uh, uh, Christopher Doyle, a cinematographer, kind of smear the action. So it's just kind of the swirl of movement that uh, has a great uh, expressive effect. But you're not really like getting the details of actual kung fu fighting. The Grandmaster, though, is oh, totally the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is focused on those details. And the, the, uh, the choreography is by uh, Wen Wuping, who's one of the great action, action choreographers ever. Yeah. And, and so you get all of the details of this very specific, because the actual specifics of the Kung Fu styles are, are really vital to what the Grandmaster is, is telling, not just in its plot, but, you know, in, in its theme. There are different styles of boxing, and Ip Man's Wing Chun style is a very specific form of fighting, and, and Wong shows you what makes up that, that form. Right. And it's these very simple movements with a lot of uh, emphasis on footwork, and it's very different from the styles of the, the Gong family, which are Ip's rivals, right? so to speak. Right. Yeah, it, there's that one fight scene where he, you know, there's the guy taunting him where, you know, I've got so many different movements and you only have three, you know, what good is that? You know, and obviously, you know, Ip Man, you know, incapacitates this guy in, you know, two seconds or whatever. But uh, yeah, and... I, I feel a little bad that we started immediately just talking about the, the Kung Fu, even though it's it's very integral to the film. Um, but I really don't think the movie's about that. I mean, it, there's it a is, lot of fight scenes in there. Yeah. You know, there's and, and the fight scenes are fantastic. I mean, they're not just filler. I mean, they are very crucial to, to the, the film as a whole and stuff like that. Um, but it really is about, uh, you know, the bigger picture of the film is um, that story of, generations passing on torches and not just this small family but or not small family but you know the gong family but you know china as a whole the whole country and how it progresses through this you know time frame of uh, you know the war um and then into um the the, the 1950s the 50s, yeah which to me i mean that's what the movie's really about the one car is part of the the hong kong new wave he was one of the later arriving directors and the from the new wave, um, it kind of started in like the late seventies, early eighties, and at that time, Wong was was working in television along with uh, Johnny Toe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the checks in the mail, Sean. Yeah, you know, I've been watching a lot of uh, <laughs> a, a lot of Hong Kong new wave movies lately, and and one of the things that strikes me about them is, like most new waves, they're they're taking a more like kind of gritty, realistic look at contemporary society, particularly youth culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the distinctive thing about the youth culture in these Hong Kong movies is that they're they're very much kind of dominated by this absent past or this, this past that was in flux as they grew up uh, just in the wake of World War II with like this massive uh, influx of refugees into Hong Kong in the, in the wake of the, the civil war between the communists and the nationalists and then the communists take over China. So the, they're, they're born, this whole generation is born in this, in this time of ridiculous turmoil and it it totally affects their outlook on society and makes them kind of nihilistic and prone to to horrible acts of violence because you know they're they're still working in action genres mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is is more or less explicit in all of the Hong Kong new wave movies that I've seen, especially in days of being wild, which is Wong Kar Wai's kind of breakthrough hit from from nineteen ninety uh and it it takes place in nineteen sixty and the characters in it are very lethargic and they're kind of burdened by this this past exp- of uh of dislocation and this kind of sense of rootlessness 
the Grandmaster, I think, is, is, a, is a totally different approach to that kind of history. The, the vision that the Grandmaster presents of, of Chinese history is one is a hopeful one, one of, mm-hmm. of unification. Like uh, uh, Ip is a newer generation coming of age during the war, and uh, the elder Gong uh, represents this previous generation, the first half of the, 21st, of the 20th century, when uh, China was subjected to, to colonization by European powers and, and by the Japanese. And what Gong tried to do was unite North and South China, basically the North uh, with like Beijing and Shanghai and the South with, with Hong Kong. And he would unite them in their Kung Fu styles, but the whole point is a kind of national unity in the face of colonization. Sure. What appeals to the Elder Gong about Ip, why he wants Ip to be his successor, is because Ip has a grander view of history rather than just being a provincial you know, we need to unify China. It has a kind of universal idea. We can we can unify you know the whole world. We can spread kung fu all over the place. So instead of of you know in in the early new wave films, this history being a burden that this younger generation has to carry and gives them a sense of nihilism. In the Grand Master, the history it's a hopeful view of history where uh, we you know can use our history and use it to you know integrate it with ourselves and give. Uh, you know, send things on to future generations. Like the the Hong Kong New Wave films are very nihilist. Like there is no future, and like it's all just going to to burn. Mm-hmm. But the Grandmaster is is incredibly hopeful. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, I think so too. Did that make any sense at all? No, it did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I, I I mean I agree. I mean I feel like it's you know, it feels different. And well, that's why that's why I'm saying like, why do you think that is? I mean, I guess we can't really pinpoint it because we're not in the head of Wong Kar Wai or whatever, but, like, can you think of a reason why this suddenly there's hope in the Grandmaster? It's tempting to give, like, a biographical explanation for something like that. Like, Wong Kar Wai is old, so now he's hopeful. But I I don't know. I I know it's a different kind of Wong Kar Wai movie. It's a different kind of, of approach to history. It's like, even though the central story of the film, the, the story of Gong Air, is a tragic one. Like she lives a short life. She, you know, is consumed. ultimately re- consumed by this this old world style of thinking. Like she has to regain her her family's honor, even though it leads to her own destruction and it leads to you know the destruction of her father's martial arts. She still feels bound by this kind of traditional idea of of honor and and what she is required to do to fulfill the demands of uh, filial piety. Uh, and it transcends that. Like he, he looks back on her, on her, and he feels sorry for her, and he loves her. But that's not how he's going to to teach his students. It's not how he's going to to you know continue Chinese martial arts tradition into the future. Well, yeah, we, you talk about this as you know, kind of a new direction. At least, at least this singular film is uh, for Wong Kar Wai, but it also has so many elements that harken back to you know most of his films. You know that there's that you know those two characters they have the same kind of missed connections that you see over and over again in Wong Kar Wai films. You know, like in The Mood for Love, obviously, um, and Chungking Express and stuff. You know, it's it's this kind of doomed. You know, they do love each other. It's never consummated. Just, you know, as, as he does so often. Well, this is, um, you know, I, I haven't read anything about this movie. Like, I, I intentionally kind of avoided all of the, I'm sure, great stuff that has been written about the Grandmaster over, over the last month or so as, as it's 
trickled out. But from like the little hints I've been gathering, I think it's being interpreted as kind of a love story mm-hmm. between between Ip and, and Gong, and I don't know that that's entirely the case. Like, I think that there's an attraction between them, and I think there's a mutual respect, but I don't think it's like a romantic longing that Ip has. Like, I think I think he's very devoted to his wife. I, I think it's a cake and eat it too kind of thing. I think he is devoted to his wife, and there is that scene that's very crucial um, at the end of the movie, or near the end of the movie, where it shows them seeing each other for the last time, him and his wife. Um, you know, before he goes to Hong Kong and is, you know, separated from her and stuff. And that scene's really crucial because she's not in the movie very much. And especially in the second half of the movie, she's not there at all. And so you kind of do kind of just see Gong and him, you know, together and, and assume something. But I think he does really, you know, to they're not, me... They're never really together, though. Like, they have a few meetings and they have, like, a I know. sexy fight scene. But that's really kind of it. No, but the, to me, the thing that sticks in my brain is is them writing to each other, that is some romantic shit where it's like, I'm going to meet you in the snow and learn the 64 hand technique or whatever it's called. Yeah. That is yeah, some erotic, <laughs> romantic stuff right there. I'm telling you, that's I hot really heavy. I don't see that as a double oh. entendre. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it as a double entendre. I just meant it as, it was very, I thought it was incredibly romantic um, and it's never consummated or whatever, but I think there is a, you know, what could have been kind of thing going on with them, but they do have ulterior motives. I mean, that you know, it's not it's not like oh, I like you, you like me, blah blah blah. We can't see each other or whatever. He does want to learn that technique. That that's well, he mean he wants to or see that technique, as he says. I want right, to see he, that technique. He uh, he admires it. He admires the Gong family martial arts. Right. Like he's not going to integrate it into his own because he's you know Wing Chun all the way. Right. You know, this is all we need. Right, but he you know he respects her so much and he wants her to kind of come with him into the modern world mm-hmm. uh not necessarily romantically but just you know for the good of of martial arts and for the good of china and he's very sad that she's unable to do that but you have to admit if someone's going to hand you the button of their coat as a sign of them you know not being able to have seen you 10 years ago in the snow that's a romantic gesture come on okay <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. I had uh, I had a couple of, of problems with the movie. One, I, I resolved... I saw that you gave it four and a half stars, not the five that it should have gotten. Yeah. One, <laughs> one, one I resolved to my satisfaction, the other the other I did not. Okay. Uh, the one I did not is uh, in the, the train fight sequence um, on the train platform where Gong Air faces her, her rival. Mm-hmm. I thought that they fight with a train rushing by in the background, and I think the, the CGI there looks really cheap. I You know what? I totally, that's, the, yeah, that's the only moment in the movie that kind of pulled me out of it, because that train does look really cheap. Um, I don't know how they could have done it, I mean, they could have done it with a real train, but that would have been a big be pain in the neck, dangerous. because it had, well, it would be incredibly dangerous, and, you know, they'd have to keep moving the train back and forth, you know, the CGI in there, it's, it's not the best. That's pretty minor. Though. That is, it is very minor, <laughs> okay. very minor, and, like, on the... The scale of Chinese martial arts movies, a, a, a cheap-looking CGI train is is way down on the list of, of poor special effects. But, you know, it does connect to something that I, I find a little bothersome about kind of 21st century kung fu movies, which is they're very, they're very much filled with these digital effects, and they all tend to look the same, and they look kind of, you know, plastic and, and phony. And I... 
really uncomfortable with that. Like, I much prefer, Wait, like, the a older, more tactile, film-based, practical effects style. Even if you can see the wires, I'd rather that than just kind of the artificial sheen that a lot of the, the, the 21st century Hong Kong movies have. Well, yeah, I'll agree with you on that. Um, you know, not even just in martial arts films, but, you know, monster movies and anything down the line. I, sure. I will always prefer the tactile to the CGI. I'm, you know, CGI is rarely done well. But Which you didn't... Cool. But did you feel... That, did this movie seem plastic and artificial to you? At times. And, you know, that scene was the biggest outlier. Yeah. But, you know, some of, like, the raindrop effects, I'm like... Eh. Really? Oh, Sean, yeah. I don't know about that. Um... I think that scene, minus the train, that seems awesome. The the fights are great. What's your favorite the fight in the movie? Terrific. What's your favorite fight scene in the movie? I'd, I'd probably go with the, the first fight with, with Tony Long and, and Jiang Ziyi, that where they're evenly matched. But, yeah, I don't want to spoil the fight. But the, that was a good fight. And it's got, like, the, the most romantic scene in the film, which is, is when they their heads slowly pass by as she's, like, flying through the air. And it's, yeah. That's my pick, too. It's very sweet. Um, and you know what's awesome about that scene is there are some great lines in this movie. A lot of them spoken by her. A couple I wrote down. But in that scene, right before they fight, she just says, without any preamble, she says, she says pity about the decor. You know? And, you're, and you know she's, she's talking about, we're about to you know, break this place apart because we're about to fight each other. And, you know, and then he's, I forget what he says, but he says, don't worry, we won't, you know, oh no, if you, you if should, we if break if something, breaks, you win the fight. Win. Yeah. yeah um, and that's just super cool. The other problem with the movie I had, which I resolved to my satisfaction <laughs> this morning as I was thinking about the, the film, is the character of Razor, played by Cheng Chen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a he's a very minor character, but he's the only one other than like the the three major characters to get his own kind of inner titles. And there are scenes with him that don't involve any of the principal characters, and that don't seem really connected to the larger plot. Now he's Jiang uh, uh, Zi meets him briefly on a train. He's basically like an assassin working for the nationalists as they resist the Japanese, and then. Uh, against the communists, uh, and he ends up fleeing to Hong Kong and killing a bunch of people and opening a barber shop. And the last we see of him, we get like an inner title that he started teaching students. Right, and then we never see him again. Right. What What, what do you make of Razor? Yeah, well, Razor did really confuse me. I mean, like I said, I just watched the movie this morning, so <laughs> I'm still kind of formulating stuff in my head with this. I, first of all, that first scene with with them on the train. I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was really great. The way she, uh, you know, snuggles up to him or whatever. <laughs> to, um, you, you get the feeling, and, and Wong Kar-wai is, a very, is notoriously uh, uh, poor at planning out his movies. Right. Like, he'll shoot a whole bunch of stuff and then and then piece the movie together later, like a, a Terrence Malick will do, or, or John Luke Godard did once in the day, where he was, like, writing the script every morning before shooting. You get the feeling that there was a there's a much longer movie with much more of the Razor character in it. Well, I, and probably It Mon too. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, it may have started out as more conventional, like uh, you said, Terrence Malick, where it's you know, people always talk about the initial script and it was this perfectly composed, you know, wonderfully written thing, and it's not on the screen at all. And you know, that's probably what happened is he saw the Gong Air stuff and was like, "This is the the meat and potatoes of this thing." You know what I mean? Right. But I mean. 
That may be, but he still left. He's still in, in there. Like, yes, the three absolutely. Chang, the three uh, Chang Chen scenes, and he didn't do that by accident. So I'm like trying to think of what. Why, I think how it, did these how did these work? How did they relate? And I think it's in they have to be there for contrast. Like they contrast to to Gong Era and they contrast to Ip Man and and what what Chang represents is is the strain of martial arts the, the strain of of uh, kung fu that became criminal that became corrupted by association with with triad organizations and organized crime in Hong Kong in the post-war period and ip is kind of is the counter to that so we have we have three Kung Fu masters. We have Gong Er, who's stuck in the old world. We have Chang Chen, who's stuck in the underworld, and then we have Ip Man, who's in this ideal world. Right. He popularizes and, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah, it's. I don't have anything else to say to that because I think you're right. I, I you know, um, I, I think another filmmaker would have had like Ip Man meeting Razor in the street, and they would have like a conversation. Like Ip's like you're being immoral, and he's like I'm going to do what I'm going right. to do, and then they'd fight, and and it would be unresolved. And, right. Uh, but that scene isn't in the Grandmaster, at least not this cut of the Grandmaster. Yeah, and let's get let's talk about let's talk about the cuts here because now we haven't read too much about the film, but from what I gather, Harvey Weinstein in his efforts to streamline the film. Um, for American audiences, um, he's cut out, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, he's cut out most of the stuff about the occupation, and I think, like, the, the more, like, the broader cultural events, and made it more of a streamlined, like, martial arts thing. I could be wrong about this, but I think he, he didn't think American audiences would understand what was going on with the occupation, um, and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, uh... I actually don't know what he cut out. I, the only thing I know for sure that he cut out is uh, the scene where uh, Zheng Zi's bodyguard, who is this... Uh, with the monkey? This old guy with the monkey. Um, he tells his story, how he was the last uh, executioner in the uh, in the empire before it was replaced by the Republic in the early 1900s. And uh, Gong's father had like taken him in, even though... You know, he was an executioner, so he was, like, not... Uh, well-respected. Well-respected <laughs> in, in this new uh, non-imperial society. Uh, her, his father took him in and gave him, like, a, a role and a purpose to mm-hmm. his life. And, and so, you know, it's this interesting story. It's not only is it connecting Gong and It to this older, even, even much more older uh, Chinese society, but it's also showing how a martial arts community can give, like, meaning to a person's life. Uh, so yeah, Harvey cut all that out. <laughs> That's stupid. I didn't. I didn't know that. That that scene. One thing you know. I I think that scene is very. I wouldn't say very important to the movie. Um, I think it's definitely important, and I think it plays into the larger themes of the film. And it comes during you know the end of the film. The 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 last fifteen twenty minutes or so of this. Once we kind of get the end of Gong Air's story, and we kind of see the the coda, as it were, and the aftermath of all that. Is just gorgeous, and it and to me that's what really like solidified how awesome this movie is because it's really it's like an elegy, you know, and and that conversation is part of that elegy, and it's a big you know it's a big component of that, yeah. and that's stupid to go. <laughs> uh, the the other the other changes I know of is uh, there's a scene at the end explaining that like the little kid in, in oh in no is Bruce Lee is is the young Bruce Lee oh. Oh, <laughs> oh! Uh, 
yeah, it's it's the Young Grizzly for Western audiences who apparently have sat through a two hour movie and want to know why. Uh, oh, that uh, and also apparently it ends with uh, with Tony Lung facing the camera and asking, "What's your style?" No, really? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. That is, I'm, 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 I'm dumbstruck. I'm speechless. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I imagine the U.S. cut is is fine because there's enough good stuff in the movie that it would be hard even for Harvey Weinstein to ruin it. But I don't know. I, you I could imagine... ruin it by having him turn to the camera at the end of the thing and say, "What's your style?" Well, what 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 he wants to do is is to have the movie be accessible to as wide an audience as possible. And in order to do that, he's going to make it less weird. He's going to make it less distinctly a Wong Kar Wai movie and make it more like exactly what you expect. So, like, we both went into this movie expecting a biopic about a Kung Fu master. And what we got instead was this kind of wispy elegy about the history of China and, and the way forward that doesn't really have much to do with who is ostensibly the main character. Right. Harvey Weinstein thinks that people are going to be really mad if that is their experience of the movie. Whereas you and I are both like, great, it's not what we expect. Harvey's view of audiences is that people only want to see what they expect to see. Yeah. So he's going to make this movie as generic as possible. And Wong Kar Wai, for all, you know, all of his you know talent as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a director, as a composer of images, is totally incapable of making a straight genre film. No, he couldn't do it to save his life. His movies have to be Wong Kar Wai movies. Like, right. even, you know, going back to his first film, As Tears Go By, is, uh, you know, it's, it's the this plot is as generic a heroic bloodshed plot as can be. It's basically the plot of Mean Streets, but it turns into this, like, lushly romantic love story. Mm-hmm. In the center of the film with like this 15 minute long sequence with the Cantonese cover of Take My Breath Away repeating over and over again. And it's it just, Wong Kar Wai cannot be contained by genre. So for Harvey Weinstein to try and, and make his movie more generic is just, it's he's going to lose. Yeah, even even yeah. the American cut of the film, I'm certain, will play like a Wong Kar Wai movie and leave audiences dissatisfied. It'll leave Wong Kar Wai fans dissatisfied because they didn't get to see the real version. And it'll leave American movie fans dissatisfied because they're like, where's, why isn't there more fighting? Right. It's still weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's just, I mean, we've talked about this more than anything on this show in, in the 10 episodes we've done so far, you know, the Harvey Weinstein cuts and stuff. Um, and, I, you know, I'm running out of ways to, to say the guy's just really shooting himself and shooting everybody in the foot with this. And it's just, I cannot fathom how he can't realize what he's doing here. He's convinced he'll make more money this way, and maybe he will. No, I don't know. I pay. I pay to see this thing in the theater at least twice. Uh, and if my money, <laughs> it is. It is opening in Seattle tomorrow. It's playing at the Varsity, uh, the movie theater where 15 years ago yesterday I started working. Wow, 15 years ago yesterday. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, but you can rent the Chinese version, the 130 minute cut at Scarecrow Video, just a couple blocks away from the Varsity. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it's cheaper. They've got a couple copies over there, so <laughs> we definitely recommend you check out the Chinese version, and hey, maybe go see the American version for Varsity too. Well, I w- you know, I would be interested to hear if anybody that's listening to this has seen both cuts and can kind of fill us in, because I 
I'm too well, much of a think, snob I think to that do it. If we had done any research for this, we would see a lot of uh, articles out there. Oh, I'm sure too. Versions, but yeah, I mean, I the only things I I saw were you know I saw reviews I think like, on the dissolve and stuff where they um, they kind of allude to it, but I don't think they had actually seen the uh, 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 David yeah. Ehrlich. I think at, at film.com has a, a lengthy article about why the American cut of of the Grandmaster is terrible and you shouldn't watch it. Mm. That I think uh, I haven't read yet, but uh, he got a positive response on Twitter. Well, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, yeah, maybe we can link to that in the in the notes for this show. Yeah, I have I have like 20 Grandmaster links bookmarked that I'm I'm looking forward to reading, and I'll I'll link to some of them on the in the notes for this show. I haven't seen too many 2013 films that are officially 2013 films. We discussed a few episodes back on you know we listed our top five. 2012 films that are only being talked about now. Um, but if we're talking seriously, you know, the calendar year, something on IMDb listed as 2013, The Grandmaster is easily my favorite film of the year so far. Well, I've seen three. <laughs> and The Grandmaster is is much better than the Top of the Lake TV series. And uh, Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. <laughs> my question for you, though, is this. is uh, uh, If Drug War were an officially a 2013 movie... Would you prefer Drug War to the Grandmaster or not? Uh, Grandmaster is better than Drug War. I will go the other way. <laughs> it, it's very close. It's very close. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it's, it's a battle of... I, I do want to see... This is another thing of me endorsing the Grandmaster is I, I finished watching it maybe four hours ago. And I'm already ready to watch it again. Like I really want to. Like, yeah, I really want to watch it again. Let this movie well. pour over me. So I want to. I want to go to Scarecrow and rent it. Yeah. Uh, well, tying in with the Grandmaster today on the show, this is how my brain works. I'm very literal minded. So I was like, what kind of music should we get for this episode? And I was like, oh, you know what? I've got that DJ Muggs Jizak collaboration, the Grand or Grandmasters. Um, so this is, you know. Last week we ended the show with some really bad white boy hip hop, so we're trying to rectify that this week. Um, so here's a cut off of Grandmasters. Uh, this is called Unprotected Pieces. Quite often, unpredictable things can happen. Well aware of the sudden danger, they start strapping. Violence can erupt within the blink of an eye. As a three-night reign of terror light up the skies. Other uprisings are in the years of making. The young start sizing up the hood and get the taking. A high-voltage power line surrounds the gold mine. Soldiers on the front line who sell dimes and whole nines. Many times enjoying themselves much too much. To hit the clutch before they pull out on such and such. It's a very unforgiving environment Cause one out of two, they get an early retirement For many different reasons The tell of the tape is uneven But they perceive as a prank has stopped them from breathing He was known to run towns and brutally gun down He said it was a great risk for him to this be is around This fast money, expensive cars Top with cars, movie stars And executives with bats and guards Record labels that ain't stable With low appraisals And a lot of burn bridges due to fragile cables Welcome back to the George Sanders Show. We are looking out the window right now. Uh, the rain has really started coming down, and that reminds us that fall 
is on its way. And, you know, this is the time of year when the prestige pictures come out, the more adventurous films come out, you know, the ones from famous auteurs come out. And we're going to make our picks, we're going to talk about, you know, the fall slate that's coming up here. Yeah, and I'm, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times about the the upcoming film festivals and the movies that are playing in New York, Vancouver, and Toronto. And so we're not going to talk about any of those. We're going to yeah. ignore the festival movies and just talk about uh, what our most anticipated non-festival fall movie is. And it looks pretty bleak. <laughs> I think there is some... There's some potential gems out there, I think. Okay, so what is your pick? Well, you know, there are, like like we were saying, there are movies that we've talked about before on the show in passing that I'm more excited about. I'm more excited sure. about the new Jarmusch movie, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, and it would be easy to pick the new Cohen film. Um, but I'm actually going to go with uh, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Gravity, which is coming out uh, this fall, and he hasn't made a movie since Children of Men. You know, I'm not over the moon for that movie. I think it's a really, really great film. Um, I haven't seen it since it came out, though, in 2006, that was. But Gravity looks awesome. And, you know, the the little reports that I've heard about it get me more and more excited. And basically, it's Sandra Bullock and George Clooney in outer space, and she, like, ends up, like, getting knocked off a space station and floating into space for, like, two hours or something like that. And it looks absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um... So I'm really that looking forward. Huh? That sounds fun. Yeah, doesn't it? Just floating uh, in space. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a big Quaron fan. I I didn't really care for Children of Men all that much. Uh, I really like his Harry Potter movie. I think I think E2 Mama Tambien <laughs> is uh, a little overrated. So you know, I, Gravity. Whatever. Yeah, but for me, this is what I like to see coming down the pipeline is some doing something really audacious, and this is pretty audacious stuff. I mean. Basically, he's just filming one or two people in utter blackness for two hours. I'm sold. I'm we'll, there. We'll, we'll see. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't have a much better choice. Like I was flipping through like Time Out New York's fall preview and and not seeing really anything that I'm all that interested in. So I, I'm just going to pick uh, The Wolf of Wall Street because it's Martin Scorsese and I like Martin Scorsese. He's been around forever and he will shortly. In just a couple of years, he will have had as long a career as uh, Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford, which is an accomplishment in itself. It certainly is. I mean, he def- yeah, he he hasn't made as many movies as the, as I yeah, but he's been making movies since 1967. I think was his first feature. Yeah. So that'll be 50 years in just a few short years. I, I love Marty, and uh, yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street. I'm I, obviously going to see it. I don't know anything about it. I, I you know, it's on Wall Street, and uh, apparently Leonardo DiCaprio is a wolf. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a remake of the Jack Nicholson film uh, Wolf you right. know, from '94. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, yeah, I saw the trailer for it, and it was definitely not the tone I was expecting for it. It's it's really uh, black comedy, you know, going into this. But no, it's good. You know, um, I thought Hugo was one of the best films Scorsese's made this uh, millennium. I really, I really yeah, didn't. I, I really liked uh, Shutter Island as well. I think Shutter Island's okay, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's Martin, it's Martin Scorsese. You're going to go see it. Yep. Why not? Tying in with the, the overall theme of this show today, uh, Kung Fu and martial arts and all that stuff, the Cinema Central pick this week is going to be Fight Scene, and we've done, we did Kung Fu before. We did Cinema Central Kung Fu film. Right, which um, uh, A Touch of Zen was my choice. It was. And then here we are talking about here it. Here we are. Look at that. But today we're, we're, we're narrowing the... Uh, 
The focus. The focus, but expanding the theme in a way to, to fight scenes. So that could be anything, anything with fisticuffs or what have you in it. Um, so, Sean, did you pick a martial arts film? I really wanted not to <laughs> because, you know, it, it, it's so obvious. But there's a reason why I like martial arts movies so much. Yeah. And it's because they're, they have really good fight scenes. I mean, that's one of the reasons, but it's it's true. But... For picking a fight scene, for me, it was not like a battle scene. Like I, I wouldn't pick like something like the, uh, the big battle scene in in Ron, for example, because that's that's not a fight. That's a whole bunch of people. I wanted like a one on one or like a one versus a whole bunch for my fight scene. And I thought about uh, non kung fu fight scenes. I thought about like some of the fights in Rocky or in Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. Really good fight. Seriously considered the final fight scene from the Karate Kid. <laughs> Because I love that movie. Sure. It's a great movie. But no, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna go with the kung fu scene and I'm gonna go with the uh, the first fight scene in Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. Among uh, kind of hardcore kung fu fans, Crouching Tiger is seems like kind of a sellout. Like it's like the the big mainstream version for all the people who didn't see all of the cool Shaw Brothers movies before that. And yeah, I can kind of sympathize with that to some extent. But the fight scenes are really good. Yeah. And especially this first one between Michelle Yeoh and, and Zhang Ziyi. And it's choreographed by Wen Woping. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it begins, Zhang Ziyi is in costume. She's head to toe and she's just stolen the sword from, from Chow Yun-Fat. And Michelle Yeoh tracks her down. And as Yeoh is, is chasing after her, the two start to kind of run through the air as they're using like their, their fancy Wu-Tang Kung Fu powers to like leap vast distances which is a, a stunt that you see all the time in Kung Fu movies, so we'll, we'll talk about it in A Touch of Zen. But usually they're, they're used by wires, and that creates some limitations in the kind of editing you can use because, because the wires are there and they're really visible if you hold the shot for too long. But with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, they're able to digitally erase the wires, which means that Ang Lee can hold the shot for much longer. So you have long takes of people jumping up buildings and running along the sides of buildings. And that's something you don't see in, in 90s Hong Kong movies or 80s or, or 70s because it just wasn't possible with the technology. But Crouching Tiger inter- integrates it so well and it's so beautiful. It just You get the whole kind of fantasy aspect of the Wuja swordplay film with a realistic filming style that's more based in long takes and the precision of the actual hand and foot movements that are like the ones that um, we talked about when we talked about one Wolfgang's choreography in the Grandmaster. That's there too in this sequence. So it's just this integration of all of these two totally different styles of martial arts movie in a new, more realistic uh, photographic style. No, that's a great choice. Uh, I, I need to see Crouching Tiger again because I haven't seen it since um, it first came out on DVD in 2000. So it's been a long, long time. Um, and I, I remember watching it, you know, and I, as I've said time and again on this show, I don't have, you know, the history of seeing as many martial arts films as you have. But I kind of did have that knee-jerk reaction the first time I saw Crouching Tiger, or, or the only time I saw Crouching Tiger, where I was like... I've seen this before. Everybody's talking about them flying in the treetops like it's some new thing or whatever. I saw that in, you know, um, Swordsman 2 or something like that, you know, which is a stupid thing. To, you know, I was... Well, I, I remember, you know, David Denby's review of Crouching Tiger in The New Yorker, and he was... It was a very positive review, but one of his lines was like, 
and then the people just take off into the air. Right. And you've never seen that before. And I'm like, you've seen it in 40 years of yeah. kung fu movies, if not earlier. Like, you know, there were kung fu movies in the 30s that had, you know, wire stunts. Sure. So I need to give the, the movie another shot. I, I think it's a beautiful film, and, I, and yeah, I, I think it's a great choice. Um, I don't, I remember that scene, but very, you know, fleetingly. Well, if you think you picked the sellout scene... I'm picking the sellout scene. I tried, you know, I was I was trying to think of, you know, the kung fu martial arts stuff that I have seen, and you know, there's some really great stuff. You know, speaking of swordsman too, I, there are a couple things in that that I think are really uh, awesome and stuff. But when I was thinking about it, I was like, I just need to pick the most badass thing, you know. And I think this this scene in particular is badass in so many different ways. I think the fight choreography is really great. The setting is really wonderful, and I think the stakes are just really high. Um, and so I'm being the white boy that I am, and I'm going Quentin Tarantino's uh, scene from Kill Bill Vol. 2, where uh, Daryl Hannah's character fights the bride in that trailer. I mean, they're in this little trailer, so the, it's really tight and taut scene, um, and they're smashing through walls and stuff. And, and just the way he raises the stakes in that scene to, you know, once um, <laughs> Uma Thurman rips out the the only eye that uh, Daryl Hannah has left and leaves her blind, scrambling around and locks her in that trailer with a briefcase full of snakes. That's good times. That's good times. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, to me, I think that's the best fight scene in the Kill Bill. I mean, there are a lot of great fight scenes in Kill Bill, but to me, that one, the intimacy of it and the just the visceral thrill of it is it can't be topped. I think it's fantastic. That that's a good pick. I I like all the the fight scenes in Kill Bill, and and Kill Bill is is very much kind of like a Crouching Tiger kind of movie. Like it's it's the old kind of grindhouse exploitation violent movies done with like a fancy budget, and, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean Crouching Tiger's budget was seventeen million dollars, which is huge by Hong Kong standards, but minuscule by Hollywood standards. Yeah, but you know, just everything about the production value is much more sumptuous, and it's the same with Kill Bill with the in relation to the revenge flicks that, that Tarantino is, is basing it on. That's a good pick. Thank you. And I do want to do a brief shout-out here. I, want to, I wanted to highlight or, or um, say thank you to Edgar Wright. I just saw um, The World's End uh, last Thursday. The first fight scene in that movie, and I'm not going to go into, into it too, too much in depth, but it's, it's great to see that people are still making really great fight scenes, and not necessarily in martial arts films. Um, there's the scene... The first fight scene in the film comes about halfway through the film in this pub restroom is just absolutely bonkers and it's super fun and it's 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 a really great set piece and I think uh, Edgar Wright is one of the better action filmmakers uh, out there right now. So I'll tell you what my my second choice was and which I probably should have done just to throw you a curveball is uh, from the movie The Miracle Worker the the Helen Keller yeah. story. Uh-huh. Where uh, uh, Annie Sullivan, her teacher, is trying to get her to sit at the table with good table manners, uh-huh. and Helen just freaks out. I remember that and scene. Just kind of thrashes Annie <laughs> all around the room and just destroys this whole room. Like Annie sends the whole family out, and she's just going to to make Helen sit at the table, and she refuses. And it's you know it's filmed like an action scene, like you know uh, like a Lau Carlone would film it mm-hmm. with like this elaborate choreography and destruction and. Uh, it's it's a fantastic visceral fight scene that is is probably the best fight scene to come out of classical Hollywood, just in terms of 
like the actual combat of the two people. Sure. Yeah. No. So there are some great fencing scenes and like uh, with like Basil Rathbone and, and Errol Flynn. Captain Blood or something. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, just physical violence in a Hollywood movie is, is very rare. Yeah. But it's intense. Miracle Worker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to to our person of the week, Wong Kar Wai. And, you know, obviously we talked about Wong uh, uh, with the Grandmaster. So you you haven't seen Ashes of Time. You yeah. have seen In the Mood for Love. I've seen, I think, I, you know, I, I should look at a list. I, I think I've seen roughly half of Wong Kar Wai's films. Um, and I was thinking about this uh, on my way down here today. If I'm, if I'm thinking of all of the ones that I have seen, besides Happy Together, which I like but I don't love, I think every other Wong Kar Wai movie I've seen... Five stars with a bullet. Like, I absolutely adore it. He's he's one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, not just contemporary filmmakers, but of all time. I think he's just the bee's knees. I feel like it's it's been kind of trendy to to discount Wong Kar Wai in recent years, kind of starting with the, the reception at Cannes of My Blueberry Nights, yeah. which was his first English language movie. That kind of started to be like a Wong Kar Wai backlash, where he had been this critical darling for 15 years before that. And now you just kind of, you know, make fun of, like, the gooey romanticism and the narration and the, the lack of, like, a clear plot structure and the digressive nature of his films. Whereas those had been virtues when it was Chunking Express and Happy Together. And, and When it wasn't Nora Jones. Jones. You know, that that bothers me. Yeah, I, I haven't seen My Blueberry Nights. Um, I, I do want to see it. I I've uh, It's on my list. I just haven't gotten around to it. And... I, I know that that was the reception of it and stuff, um, but that doesn't deter me from seeing it. I, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, yeah, and you know these things these things happen from time to yeah. time. Like it, it, you know, it's just human nature to be trendy, mm-hmm. uh, and people just kind of pile on. Especially somewhere like Cannes, which is like the the trendiest of the trendy places, where it's all like a matter of, of piling on and one upmanship. Mm-hmm. Um, Hence the the famous booze at can that happened. Yeah, and it's it's my it's my experience that you're best off just ignoring everything <laughs> that comes out of can. Like it's just not you just don't pay attention to it. Sure, it's, it's all hype. I have good, bad, indifferent. Just ignore it. Yeah, just wait to see the movie yourself. But what is it about Wong Kar Wai's movies that you like so much? If I start breaking it down into the individual components, um, I'll just start rattling off everything. <laughs> but I, I love, uh, obviously, his visual palette and the way he films things. Um, you know, there's stuff that he does, like, in Fallen Angels and Chunking Express, which, you know, those two movies are, are of a pair. But he does those things that I think other directors, if I saw it in their movies, it would be kind of clumsy, but he does those kind of like slow motion things and the picture's kind of a little fuzzy mm-hmm. or whatever. And, and I think it's just, I mean, the way he employs it, it's just fantastic. His music selections are phenomenal. And I actually want to talk about this during the Grandmaster. There's some wonderful music in that thing. Um, yeah. But it's not uh, it's not that kind of pop music that we're used to. Right. In one no, there's there's actually one um, piece, and I can't remember where it happens in the film, but it's it's this really dramatic classical piece. Um, I can't remember. It had to be during some fight scene or something like that. But I were I was kind of just like wrapped up in the whole thing, and I was like, why am I so like invested? And it was totally that music was just fantastic. But I don't know what the piece was or anything like that. But but yeah, so I, I'm a big fan. Um, Brian Eno has a, a quote 
as, as he has a zillion quotes and they're all genius, but he has a quote that says, um, repetition is a form of change. Um, and I think Wong Kar Wai, it, not just in his music choices, but in the way he makes his films, that's totally his style. And, and like, in, you know, the way, uh, California Dreamin appears in Chungking Express plays that thing. I don't know what 30 times in that movie. Not, I mean, not just California Dreamin'. There are other songs that What a Difference a Day makes right. recurs in that. And there's another one in the, Dreams, in the first section. There's of the, film. the Cranberries. That's only been twice. I know, but still, but it happens twice. Yeah. Yeah, uh, like repetitions and variations on themes is is what is so distinctive about Wong Kar Wai to me. Not just within movies, like in like in Shunking Express, but also just between movies, mm-hmm. like like the way that all of his movies kind of fit together into this like cohesive whole. Like I've been uh, I've been kind of rewatching some of some of his early movies, and I rewatched uh, uh, Ashes of Time in the the Redux version the other day, and it it struck me just how similar this. Wuja movie that's an adaptation of uh, a martial arts mid-century martial arts novel. It's like set in this outpost in this desert with, where all these swordsmen come and they have you know various romantic problems. It, it just struck me how structurally similar it is to My Blueberry Nights, which is about Nora Jones traveling cross country and hearing like tales of woe from Rachel Weisz and, and Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. Structurally, they're basically the same movie. Uh, the main characters are. Uh, are uh, kind of disappointed in their own relationships. And so they hear stories of other people's relationships gone wrong, and that makes them feel better, and so they head back out into the world. Exactly the same movie, totally different settings. Right. Well, and it's like we said during Grandmaster, you know, that misconnections thing, you know, you see it in, in movies. Like, you know, this is totally different, from, even though it shares the same stars in The Mood for Love. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's it's there. It's in the DNA of what he does. Yeah, and in in so many movies, uh, that misconnection is with Maggie Chung. Yeah, and in As Tears Go By, Andy Lau uh, is in love with Maggie Chung, but you know, generic circumstances prevent him from from reaching her. In uh, in uh, Days of Being Wild, Andy Lau again wants to be with Maggie Chung, but ends up in a different country. In uh, In the Mood for Love, Tony Lung and Maggie Chung. There's something uh, very distancing about Maggie Chung. She's like an object to aspire to. Yeah, well, absolutely. I, I'd like to think that I have some missed connection with Maggie Chung because, uh, hot damn. I mean, yeah. And so, so yeah, I love I love the, the repetition that he uses. Um, he gets really great performances out of, out of people. You know, I think some of the best work... To, you know, Tony Lung, uh, you know, briefly, is probably... Maybe my favorite contemporary actor. I, I love him in everything I see him in. He's he's definitely my favorite, yeah, favorite he's, current actor. And there are a lot of great actors in in Hong Kong to come out of the like the nineteen eighties and nineties. And and Wong Kar Wai's worked with most of them. Andy Lau, Tony Lung, Leslie Chung was amazing and and died way too young. Uh, Maggie Chung, Bridget Lin, Gong Li, you know. Wong Kar Wai worked with all of them and got great performances out of all of them. Takashi Kaneshiro, the other Tony Lung, yeah, Jackie Chung, yeah, um, Jiang Ziyi. Jiang Ziyi's oh her, my. her best work with with Wong Kar Wai in 2046. She is she's amazing and she's great in the Grandmaster. She's fantastic well. in the Grandmaster. I think I think she. I mean, she has to carry the real weight of the Grandmaster. You know, yeah. I mean, Tony Tony Lung is kind of, her story. It's her, yeah, and she's the one that goes on a journey, a, a real journey, and and um, she's the one that has this like turmoil because you don't really, you know, 
Itmon is, is kind of a more reserved, passive kind of guy, just in his nature or whatever. She's got some heavy lifting to do here, and she yeah. kills it in this. And, and he really brings that out of her. And, and you know, Jiangxi has been really absent from, from U.S. screens for a long time since uh, Memoirs of a Geisha, Ugh, which is a yeah. bad movie, but she's very good in it. Yeah. She's, she's been working, but it's just those, uh, the Chinese movies that she's been making just haven't really tra- uh, uh, made much of an impact here in the U.S. So it's great to see her back after, you know, she started out her career um, with such a great string of movies. She's in Zhang Yimou's uh, The Road Home. She's in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which made her a big star, and then a small role in Hero, and then a, the awesome. main role in House of Flying Daggers. It's wonderful to see her again. But her, her best performance, I think, is in 2046. Yeah, she's... Uh... She's really fantastic, and um, and you know you, I, you can't say enough about Tony Long. Like, there's not a, there's not a, a, a Chinese language director who has not worked with Tony Long, and he has not been phenomenal in any movie. Have I ever told you my? Which is a grammatically awkward sentence, <laughs> but it means that Tony Long is awesome. Tony Long is awesome. I might be the only person that sees this, but I have a pitch for a movie that I've been throwing around for a few years now. When they finally make the biopic about uh, President Barack Obama, you can't pick somebody better than Tony Long. I really, I really think I can he, see that. They have the ears. They have the ears. They totally have the ears. He would make a great Barack Obama. He just he can't do it in blackface. Though. No, 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 no. No, I think, we've, I think we can all, you know, after I'm not there, I think we can handle just... Tony Lung being Tony Lung as Barack Obama. Yeah. yeah. All right. So if you had never seen a Wong Kar Wai movie, or if, if, if you met to, someone who yeah, had never seen a Wong Kar Wai movie, which one would you recommend? That's a good question. I mean, you know, In the Mood for Love is my go-to pick, is my favorite of, of Wong Kar Wai's films. Um, it's on my top ten films of all time list. So that, um, and I think it's just devastatingly beautiful. And that's a good question, because... I think it kind of depends on the person that I would be trying to sell it to, you know what I mean? Like, sure. like I was thinking about my brother today, um, and he's got some adventurous tastes and stuff. I don't think I would start with that with him. You know, I could easily, I could actually see pushing the Grand Master his way and, and, and getting into that. Um, and I actually just recently watched Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels kind of gets a bad rap, because um, it's, you know... It's a great movie. It's fantastic. I think in a way, it might be a good place to start, because the thing with Chunking Express... Which is fantastic, and was the first one that I saw. Um, it was the first one I saw as well. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a lovely, wonderful movie, but it 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 might be the most Wong Kar Wai Wong Kar Wai movie in a way, <laughs> which could be a little distancing to someone that has no idea what's going on. I think Fallen Angels is a little more palatable, maybe for someone that's not as familiar with this stuff. Um, yeah, it's got such a wild visual style though, with like the crazy fish so eye good. lenses oh. and, and Takashi Kinoshiro running around like. Not talking, but you know, yeah, it's, making making people. It's funny, like, massaging pigs. Yeah, and, like, making people serve him ice cream, and <laughs> and, and then like you know, Laurie Anderson on the soundtrack. It's a really oh, it's such a good movie. So basically, I think I just gave you seven answers for that. But um, what would you pick? I would probably pick Chunking Express. Yeah, just because like it's it's like the second greatest movie of all time <laughs> after uh, after Seven Samurai. Uh, but In the Mood for Love seems to me to be, like, the most conventional Wong Kar Wai movie. If there's yeah. a Wong Kar Wai movie for people that don't like Wong Kar Wai movies, it would be In the Mood for Love. Not that it's not a great movie, because it is, but I think it, it's it's the least Wong Kar Wai-ian. 
Okay, I could buy that. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you say that statement as you know, you, you're not denigrating the movie by me. No, statement. no, not at all. Um, it's a, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, I mean, I I just I think it's it's absolutely phenomenal. And in the mood for love, you know, it appears to be like the consensus one car Y movie to see. Like it's the it's the the one that got the most votes in the sight and sound poll. Like it was, I think it was just outside the top twenty. Mm-hmm. Might have actually been in the top twenty. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Either there or Chunking Express. Chunking Express is just so great. No, it's fantastic. It's really good. Um, I don't know if I. I really liked it the first time I saw it. I, I don't think I fully appreciated Chunking Express until I saw it on the rewatch, um, which I think I've seen it a few times now. And it's it's and that's another thing about Wong Kar Wai um, that I think is um, one of his strengths is his movies are so rewatchable and not not in a way you know they're they're the rewatchable movies that are like comfort food like uh, Back to the Future or which is also an amazing film. Wong Kar Wai's films you can watch over and over and over again and you get something different out of them each time and there's there's so much to chew on and there's so much to just right. and you that's know. and that's a byproduct of his digressive style mm-hmm. of his of his refusal to impose like a, a simple plot or narrative structure onto his films like they're they contain so much that you know this time when you watch it you latch onto this character and 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 their story and then maybe next time it's a different character or maybe it's just this one little moment this time that you see you know reflected and 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 buried throughout the film like there there is always something more to be gained from a Wong Kar Wai film. Yeah, you could just live in, in his work, and uh, it's it's really great to to live during a time when new Wong Kar Wai films are coming out, and uh, you know you can get excited about um, you know it. Like Terrence Malick, although Malick's been a lot more prolific as of late, you know it, the anticipation you know can be a little excruciating at times because I think you know the Grandmaster was announced like five years ago officially and and every year I would put it at the top of my most anticipated films list and every year it would be pushed back further and further and it'd be like oh man <laughs> but, well, I'm, I'm still waiting for Ho Shao Shan's uh, Wuxia film which is supposedly in production but we'll see yeah yeah well uh, yeah go see everyone Car Wai film yep cool <laughs> we're gonna uh, listen right now to a clip from our next movie King Who's A Touch of Zen So 
the second film we're talking about today is A Touch of Zen, which was directed by King Hu in 1971. He made it in, in Taiwan, where he moved after he had a falling out with the Shaw brothers over the final edit of his film uh, Come Drink With Me, which was uh, one of the, the first big major wuxia movies in this revival that came about in the late 60s and early 70s and led to an explosion worldwide of martial arts cinema. Now, A Touch of Zen is a massive epic. It's three hours or so long, depending on which cut of the movie you're watching. It was initially uh, shown in two halves. I think the first uh, half played in 1970 and the second was released in 1971, and it kind of repeated the final scene of the first half at the beginning of the second half. It starts as the the story of this uh, scholar, a, a bachelor who lives with his mother in this old abandoned fort. And he's very content with his simple life, even though his mom wants him to, to get a, a government job. He becomes embroiled in the story of this refugee who's fleeing from the secret police of the empire. Her father has been uh, murdered by the eunuch in charge of the secret police, and she's now on the run from the eunuch's agents. The scholar helps her out. Uh, there's a big battle. And then the movie becomes something else entirely. So you had never seen this film before. This is probably the third or fourth time that I've watched it. So I knew what to expect. Mm-hmm. How did it treat you? How did it treat me? Treated me just fine, Sean. Went down <laughs> like a fine wine. I really liked this movie, and I, I really didn't know anything about it. Um, you know, you picked it as a Cinema Central a few weeks back. Um, for your Kung Fu film. Um, and that was the extent of really me knowing about this film. Uh, I mean, I heard the title bandied about or whatever. So I went into this pretty much cold turkey. Um, I even sent you an email earlier in the week. Um, I didn't realize it was over three hours long. And I said that this is the worst possible week since I've been watching these, uh, these, uh, slapstick double features every night. Worst possible week for me to watch a three hour, uh, martial arts film. But, I hunkered down, and uh, I had no idea where this movie was going. And that's one of the things I really liked about it. And um, I think the, the filmmaking is so confident here that King Hu uh, just teases out elements um, as you're going, particularly in the first hour. It's kind of almost, at least my viewing of it, was uh, like a mystery. Because I was yeah. like, who are all these Definitely. people? There's no fight scene for like the first 50 minutes of the movie. Yeah. It's just, it's character building. It's setting the, the stage. And there's this mystery of, is there a ghost in the house? Is it this girl? What's the story with the girl? Who's this guy who's trying to have his painted, portrait painted? Right. You know, there's something going on there, but we don't... We really don't know, know what it is, and we're we're almost as much in the dark as uh, Ku is, the artist. Uh, the scholar. The scholar artist guy. We learn a few things a little bit ahead of him, but for the most part, yeah, we don't know what the heck is going on here. Um, which I think could be off-putting to some people, especially because it's like a third of the movie is, is, is built around that. I think it's fine. I love long movies. Um, I love being wrapped up in a world, and I, I didn't feel like this movie dragged at all. I think it, it's it's actually very um, I wouldn't say taut, but it's it's uh, you know it moves along steadily and and you know flows naturally. I think it's it does it doesn't seem like it's a three hour movie. No, it really doesn't. At least to me, and you know I have patience for for slow moving movies, so. You know, maybe for somebody else. Mileage may vary, but yeah. No, but I I agree with you. And I think part of that is that first hour is, quote unquote, the slowest hour. You know, so it kind of builds you on this this slower rhythm. And then 
it kind of culminates at the end of the first half with that fight in the bamboo um, scene, the forest, which which you were mentioning in the in your intro, and I wrote down uh, bamboo fight so nice they showed it twice <laughs> uh, because yeah, then you know it ends. There's a little intermission and it goes right into the, the second part of the film. And the second part of the film, there, there are more fight scenes. It moves faster. You know what's going on. It kind of... It temporally it, moves faster. There are, there are big leaps in, in the story time that are not so carefully explained, whereas the first kind of plays out over just a couple of days, the whole first half of the film. Right. The second takes place over like a year. And it the second hour... I mean, if I was going to, you know, simplify this... The movie's kind of like a few different kinds of movies. The first hour is like a mystery. The second hour is kind of like a war film that kind of culminates in this battle. Um, there are a couple of, 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 of big fight scenes in this, um, but I'm thinking of the one where they booby-trapped the sure. the um, compound, as it were. Um, and then the third hour, or, you know, the, the last part of the film is, is this, like you said, it, it goes off on a tangent and becomes this kind of more spiritual Thing. And I was, on, yeah, I was on board with the whole the whole kit and caboodle here. Yeah, I, I think you're on the right track with this with this three part split and uh, uh, flipping around the internet. I, I saw a, a reference to that three part split mm-hmm. as as each half corresponding with a different kind of Chinese philosophy. The the first half being uh, uh, grounded in superstition and mystery and the unknown, mm-hmm. which is uh, uh, kind of like Taoism. Mm-hmm. It's an earlier Chinese. Uh, religion sure the second part being uh the more having to do with like the politics of the internal politics of the empire and also the warfare as as ku is planning the the defense of the fort against the the eunuchs men um that would correspond to confucianism which is more like the political practical philosophy of of chinese culture and then the third section which gets into very kind of symbolic allegorical spiritual elements involving this monk who comes to the defense of of ku and the the princess or she's not really a princess, but the woman he's uh, protecting, that would be Buddhism, which is the the later uh, dominant Chinese religion that came along after Taoism and Confucianism had already been established. Yeah. Uh, So it's this progression through the history of Chinese thought, as well as just being a a really cool action movie. Yeah, it's a very, very, very cool action movie um, with some really great fight scenes that are very different from one another. Yeah, it's 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 totally engaging. Um, uh, we we can talk about some of the fight scenes. Uh, this is a like I said, this is a swordplay movie. It's a, or a wuxia film, which is uh, people can jump really high, and it's a different kind of jumping than we saw um, than you see in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Although this movie is a huge influence on that, and I kind of want to talk about that a bit. But there's more use of trampolines. Mm-hmm. And it's actually really cool. Like he'll, uh, there's like the, the scene in the forest. Uh, Yang, the the woman and her uh, bodyguard general are chasing after some of the eunuchs men, and they're running, and then they start jumping. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool because they're jumping like twenty feet in the mm-hmm. air. But the way uh, King Hu is filming them, you don't see their feet, so you don't see that they're actually just bouncing on these trampolines with like wires above them. So yeah, it's like a really cool long shot effect. And in other scenes, he'll show like the person taking off and then he'll cut to them flying through the air and then he'll cut again to them landing on the ground. And that was like the the easier way of shooting these kind of ridiculous uh, superhuman stunts. But I like the long shots. I just like... Yeah, there's that one on the rooftop. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Where they're bouncing around like Tigger or something like that. Yeah, yeah. it's great. It is really great. Um, well, I, I want to talk about... I guess we could talk about the fight scenes. To me, I wrote down 
there are more than just three, but to me, going with the three hours of the film and three sections, to me, there's um, there's the bamboo fight, mm-hmm. which we, we kind of briefly touched on, which is great. It's um, it's a small scale fight. You know, there's not that many people involved in it. Yeah, it's like this. It's Yang and and uh, she, her bodyguard. Um, I guess like two or three. Two or three. Yeah. Of the of the government people, yeah. um, and then there's the the big one, the ghost scene where where um, they fortify this compound, and and um, Ku has has discovered a latent talent for military planning. Well, he's read a bunch of books about right. it. So he, but he's never been able to put it into practice, right? And and supposedly this dilapidated fort that that Ku lives in is haunted. So he gets his mother to spread rumors that they're that they've like seen ghosts, and uh, the eunuchs men actually believe it because they're superstitious. Mm-hmm. So he sets all these elaborate traps for them to come in at night and and scare them while uh, the general and and the the woman kill them all. Right, uh, and incredibly elaborate. I mean, the work that he must have put in to get all these, um, you know corpses that pop up and ringing these bells and stuff. Um, and yeah, and then, so there's that, that scene. And then there's the, the final, like I, I wrote down Buddhist fight, which is the, the most emotional, obviously, because they're, I mean, well, there are plenty more deaths in the ghost one, but the, uh, the deaths here hit home a little harder and, yeah. you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, culminates in the film, which I, I asked this during the Grandmaster, but is there is there one because they're very they're wildly different. Is there one that you really uh, think shines above the rest? No, and it's hard to say given the the current version of the film that's available mm-hmm. is is very poor. It's a it's a very substandard DVD put out you know maybe ten years ago. Yeah, and for the big central action sequence. The print is so murky and it's so inky black, it's really hard to make out the kind of details um, that are going on in the fighting. Like, you have to really strain to watch to see the people moving in the shadow. And I think it's entirely just because of the poor DVD. Like, if, uh, you know, if Criterion or somebody came along and remastered the film, I think that that scene would be a lot better Mm -hmm. than it plays. Like, you have to kind of give it the benefit of the doubt watching it on the crappy DVD. I, I agree with that. Um, I, w- I was going to touch about this, and we talked about this right before the, the we started recording here. But um, I complained when we talk about when we talked about Ride Lonesome about the day for night shooting and how it took me out of the movie. Sure. Um, and I and you brought this up when I came in, and I said I was going to talk about this. Um, I preferred the murkiness here to the day for night stuff in something like Ride Lonesome because. Um, Sure, it's dark and it's really, really hard to see, but it felt like night to me. And that, to me, works a lot more, a lot better than just, like, tinting the, the picture or what have you. And you're right. I mean, I watched it during in the afternoon, um, and I, there was sunlight streaming in, which is my least favorite way to watch a movie. But, I, like I said, I didn't have any other opportunity to see this thing. Um, but I was on board with it. I, I was... I think you see enough in this crappy transfer to get you going, and and there are, and it kind of, I really like the end of that scene where they end up killing uh, the leader, and um, you do see enough of that to really yeah, that takes place in a candlelit interior. So yeah, it's, you get you, you see get more of it. Blood um, streaming on this tablet and stuff. So so that being said, like that's kind of disqualified because I don't think sure. I'm really getting like the full experience of that scene. If I got to pick a favorite, it's going to be like the first appearance of the the monk. The Abbot, played by yeah. by Roy Chow, and it's not it's not a big fight scene at all. Like his, it's a flashback scene 
these monks just kind of appear among these rocks as the the eunuchs men are chasing the the girl and he just kind of gets in the way and people rush at him and he just kind of turns them aside and he looks just totally disinterested and just flips them around and he looks bored with these worldly affairs of these men who think that they can fight him that's that's my favorite. I just it is I love, really I love Roy Chow's performance in in the movie as a whole, but in that scene in particular, I think yeah, he's, he's he commands the screen, and uh, yeah, it's it's super badass. I mean, it, you know, seeing him just disarm these guys with without even breaking a sweat, he barely even looks at them. No, he yeah, barely, and and well, and that happens later at the end of the film too. You know, when he's challenged and he's like, "I'm not gonna you know mess with you or whatever," and he starts to walk away, and but then he's you know forced to engage in this fight and he does the same thing and it's 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 the coolest way of doing it you know this blase like oh i'm better than this but i'm still gonna kick the crap out of you kind of thing um is really great what i want to talk about this movie and what the biggest tie-in for me with the, the grandmaster this week is um i was really gratified to see two films with such strong female leads uh characters in them in here i mean Yang, Miss Yang, as she's called in the film, she is badass, man. Yeah, she's played by uh, by Xu Feng, who's one of the the bigger the bigger stars of the period. Like, you know, because he's making the film in Taiwan, he doesn't get the the whole you know stable of Hong Kong actors. Sure. Taiwan's film industry is much less developed than than Hong Kong's was. And he had made um, Cheng Pei Pei a star with with Come Drink with Me, and having strong female heroines is. Uh, is a, a King Hu trademark. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, there's Cheng Pei Pei in, uh, in Come Drink With Me and then also in the, in the follow-up Dragon Gate Inn. Uh, I believe it's Xu Feng also. And, and these movies were wildly popular, not just in, in Taiwan and Hong Kong, but throughout Southeast Asia. So this, this kind of tradition of the female heroine uh, can be traced in a lot of ways to the, the influence of, of King Hu's movies. I mean, there were female heroines before him. Sure. But he really, you know... Goes out of his so, way. I mean, she, yeah, she's the ass-kicking Buddhist monk, Abbot. It's hard to top the badassery there, but she's, I mean, really awesome. And, and you see why, you know, and, and what's great is Ku is so ineffectual. And he's such a, a, you know, a nebbish kind of nerdy guy or whatever. Right, he's picked on by his mom. Like, the, the exchanges where his mom is trying to get him to take the, the test to yeah. become a government official are exactly like the exchanges on Seinfeld between George Costanza and his mom. <laughs> Georgie! She, wants, she, she always wants him to take the civil service test so he can get a job as a postman. Right. And that's exactly what, what Ku's mom wants him to do. <laughs> right. Well, she has a great line, and I, I actually wrote this down. Before we know anything about Miss Yang um, in that first hour, the mom wants to set him up with her. Um, and he's like, uh, you know, I don't know, or whatever. Um, but, but he's very smitten because oh, he's very he, pretty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but his mom's argument is, quote, she has no friends and you're a lonely nut. So do it. <laughs> I mean, that's logic right there. You know. Yeah, but the mom is hilarious. She's fantastic. She's uh, really great. Cool. Ku is a really fascinating character because through the first hour of the film, he's the main character, and then and you know it's it's he who comes up with the plan for the defense that saves the day, and then we get the aftermath of the battle. I yeah, I want to talk about that scene, uh, and it 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 comes with with dawn, and we see Ku at like the top of of a wall as he's seen like the remains 
of, uh, of the battle. And he's laughing because his strategy is working. He's walking around and, and he's, you know, springing the, the remaining traps and he's seeing like the dummies that he made the stupid soldiers think were corpses. And he's walking all through the grounds and he's just laughing. Ha 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 ha. And then all of a sudden he trips over a body and then he looks and he sees that the ground is just littered with corpses. There's just bloody bodies everywhere. Bodies everywhere. And he is horrified. Yeah. And that that is a bit of filmmaking trickery on on whose part because the whole time he's laughing, we're seeing overhead shots of yeah, the grounds, yeah. and there are no bodies anywhere. Yeah. But then once once Koo sees them, then there we are see them everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And at that point, the story kind of ceases to be about Koo. Well, he's yeah. For the last hour and change, he's. Barely in this thing. Like, we see him, he heads off to find Yang, who has gone into seclusion at the monastery. We Her see work him, is done. We now. see him walking, you know, around nature mm-hmm. and ignoring it because he's, he's on his single-minded quest. He's just about to get to the temple, and he's given his child and sent away. Yep. And, you know, that's kind of the end of his story. Yeah. He he comes back in, you know, he's he's resting by a river or a stream or whatever, and there's a, a warrant or something out for his... Right, but that's just kind yeah. of, that's just plot necessity. Like, his character is done with that realization that he has killed all of these people. I don't think he's necessarily done, because I think, and if we're going to get into it now, we might as well, um, the ending of the movie, um, where, yeah, he disappears, he's gone. And I guess to set the, that part up, there's this, uh, I don't know exactly what his title is, the, the villain in, in the last uh, He's part a of the film. general. Just a general guy. He ends up having a fight with that, the abbot and Yang um, and her you know, second in command or whatever um, that results in the abbot, who's kind of been this impervious, you know, awesome ass-kicking dude, getting stabbed and... Uh, Stumbling up onto this mountaintop and sitting there in a very, you know, um, Buddha-esque. Buddha-esque pose with the sun behind him. And the images, you know, are like uh, all psychedelic, you know, the, the colors all flipped and reversed and negative and stuff. And it goes off on this crazy psychedelic journey, which is fantastic. Um, but why, why I'm talking about that with in regards to Ku is uh, he does show up in that last, there's a montage where it shows each character that's still alive looking towards that Buddha person, and they show him. And I think, even though, yeah, ostensibly his story is done much earlier in the film, I think that's his real closure, too, as it is for everybody else. And he's got the baby, and he falls on his knees, you know, and he, he I think that's when he gets it, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, take that. <laughs> Stick that in your pipe and smoke it. But let's what talk I mean, about, let's talk about, about that. What I mean about his story being done is just that, like, his plot. Right, sure. Story, okay, like, his, sure. his role as an active figure in the movie that we're yeah. watching. And, and I like think that's really... His spiritual odd. journey doesn't end, and that's kind of the whole point of right. Buddhism. Well, and I like, yeah, and I like how this movie um, kind of disposes of him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I like it when... when films, you know, <laughs> or, or whatever, you know, novels or what have you, will just suddenly uh, be like, well, we're done with you. We're going we're gonna to follow this person for a little bit or whatever. Sure. Um, and, I think, and it doesn't happen very often, um, but it works really, really well here. I think we should talk about that end. That's the most unconventional part of the film. Yeah, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel that way at the time because, because who's constructed the film so well as this progression 
both in in kind of the style of the story it's telling and just this kind of increasingly abstract and philosophical and and symbolic. Mm -hmm. It it feels like a culmination rather than as like a jarring... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, why did that happen? And, you know, I I think it it helps to look at this in, in the context of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is... A film inspired by by King Hu's movies, like it, it casts Cheng Pei Pei. Um, it has uh, you know scenes in the bamboo forest. It has a kind of a similar uh, female heroine in Zhang Ziyi's character, and it has it kind of plays with Buddhist philosophy, but not really. It's much more grounded, destroyed with with Michelle Yeoh and Chai and Fat. But then at the end, it ends at this temple with this this weird scene where Zhang Ziyi jumps off the bridge and you're not really sure what happens to her like if she flies away or if you know she's actually killing herself and it's really kind of ambiguous and a lot of people see it as like her killing herself which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me but what i think that Ang Lee was going after was some kind of like kind of transcendent you know buddhist experience like you get in a touch of zen mm-hmm. but because he didn't um, do the lay the groundwork that that King Hu does in a touch of Zen in in setting up the Buddhist character, setting up the symbolic nature of the story. It just reads as jarring and like that's just ambiguous for the sake of being arty mm-hmm. kind of ending. Yeah, I uh, as when we were talking about that earlier, I, I don't remember the film The Crouching Tiger well enough to comment on that. Um, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, did the, the did the ending of this make sense to you? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. No, it seems completely natural. When I just when I talk about it, I'm, I'm talking about it because in in the grand scheme of of martial arts films or whatever, it's kind of an anomaly a little bit. But it's totally natural and organic, and it makes the movie. It, it it it's like the 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 perfect bow on top of the you know the present that you're getting with this movie because if you start this movie and you see Ku in in his little life and stuff you it doesn't seem there, like there's you're no gonna, way to predict that there's no way to predict this with a Buddha figure bleeding gold right exactly <laughs> you, there's no way of tying it together but you're right the way that it's all set up it, it plays out perfectly and I think it's a um a, a fantastic piece uh, all the way through I think it's really great. Um, an interesting movie that this was making me think of, not a lot while watching this, but um, periodically, every once in a while, you're never going to guess what it is. The Wild Bunch. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. Um, the, both films start, and uh, you and I both have notes about this, because um, Touch, of, Touch of Zen starts bugs. With, with bugs uh, in, a, in a web. You know, those flies are, are caught in a spider's web. And, you know, Wild Bunch starts with the scorpions or whatever the kids are playing with or whatever and starts with that shot or whatever. I mean, I could tie the plot of Touch of Zen into Star Wars, too, if I wanted to. Actually, that fits pretty darn well. Um, But, (laughs) new article, I just thought of it. (laughs) Star Wars and a Touch of Zen. Um, But, no, we're talking about the spiderweb thing. The the imagery comes back again and again in this film. Um, There there are shots from the ground looking up at the trees, um, much later on in the film, that I mean, the tree leaves with the sun behind it look exactly like the spider web at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, the the natural their natural world and and just photographs of it, just either aside shots like in the opening, just shots of nature by itself, or just nature integrated with the 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 settings that the characters find themselves in. Like the dilapidated fort is just overrun with tall grass mm-hmm. and weeds and. And one of the 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 abbots like 
special power seems to manifest itself by him like moving his head from side to side and you get lens flares of the sun right. shining behind mm-hmm. him. Um, it's just the, this integration with the natural world into, into the environment is, uh, runs throughout the film and it's, you know, it's metaphorical, it's, it's Buddhism, it's, it's all part of nature. It's all cycle of life kind of stuff. Sure. But it's also, you know, just like the web of the, uh, the sinister eunuch secret oh, agents yeah. all over the place. You know, it's, it's all part of a whole. Yeah. And it's not heavy handed, you know, it's just no. there. It's, it's not beating you over the head with it, you know? Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice touch, a nice touch. Of that. <laughs> yeah. And you know, uh, the American title, the English title is a touch of Zen, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because Zen is a Japanese strain of Buddhism. And this is very much a Chinese film. Right. I think the, the original Chinese title is, is, uh, something about Yang's character. Yeah. Like Lady Yang's or journey or something yeah. like, yeah, something like that. Um, that's what the subtitles say during the opening credits. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, Touch of Zen. It it's it's an odd title all the way, um, but it it you know it's a great title even if it's like ethnically incorrect. Right. Yeah, it, it's intriguing. Yeah. You know, I'll give it that. I, I don't think it'd be the one I'd pick. You know, but it's you know it's it's good. Jajang Ka's new film uh, coming out. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to see it in a couple of weeks. Uh, is a Touch of Sin. Right. Which uh, it's it's his first martial arts movie, and I think. Uh, Pretty clearly a, a reference to the King Who mm. film in the title there. Uh, is this your favorite King Who film? Yeah, this might be my favorite Kung Fu film. Like, this is top five easily. Uh, I really I really like Dragon Gate Inn. I really like Come Drink With Me. Uh, one I just recently saw um, is Raining in the Mountain, mm-hmm. which is much more low-key, but it's set in a, a Buddhist monastery, and there's... A kind of a similar integration of, of Buddhist philosophy, but it's much more uh, relaxed and more, it's basically like a heist movie with a bunch of Buddhism in it. That's cool. And also uh, his follow-up to A Touch of Zen, The Fate of Lee Khan, is another film set in an inn like Dragon Gate Inn, like Come Drink With Me. And it looks like a really cool movie, but the only way it's available, as far as I know, is on uh, YouTube. And it's a really, really poor, like, uh, cropped copy of it. It's not worth it. Yeah. Yeah. You just, it, eventually, hopefully, it'll see the light of day in a, in a better release. Than yeah. And I, and I hope that this does too, you know. I, I don't yeah. think, I don't think the DVD of this, I don't think people should avoid the DVD of this, but it's definitely, you know, it does hinder the movie a little bit. It, it, it will be great when a remastered Blu-ray of A Touch of Zen comes out, but don't, don't wait for that. Just <laughs> go watch it. Uh, if you want to see like a, your first King Who movie, though, I'd, I'd recommend uh, Dragon Gate Inn, which is similarly not in a great copy, um, or Come Drink With Me, which is the only King Who movie ra- available on Region 1 DVD mm. in a very nice edition from uh, Dragon Dynasty. Thanks, Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, that's our discussion of uh, Touch of Zen. Uh, we're going to listen to a little bit more of the Jizza DJ Muggs collaboration. Uh, this is Destruction of a Guard, featuring a chorus from Raekwon the Chef. A man died holding some dice that he was shaking. Had the bank stop, but no valuables was taken. Shot at 8.45, but he died at 9. The video was the most precise witness to the crime. So pop, 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 when the shot soothes the blame. We get dropped and we move from the game. One get knocked, now his whole life has changed Cause he's so far from free in the world that seems strange Pop, 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 when the shot, who's the blame? We get dropped and we move from
from the game. One get knocked, now his whole life has changed. Cause he's so far from free in the world, but seems strange. The story had a familiar ring to truth, but it needed a little more tangible proof. He was blown off the map behind an aggravated kidnap. Trap metal everywhere, the bomb was gift wrapped. The problem had became increasingly urgent. Product was nothing but bags of detergent. In all the years of war, this was the most vicious battle and mainly fought from up close. A bundle burglary, to no surprise. Just another sloppy murder that was in disguise. Now they could do nothing but hope and pray that the boys don't come through with the scope and spray. Valuable time comes with the price to pay. Smoke on the deserted street, just a mile away. Hustling with those cannibals right from the start. That'll rip out your heart and consume the fattest parts. To the watchful eye of federal agents collecting cans while they were disguised as vagrants, not knowing that a prisoner had held the key of a cold defendant who was so far from free. Detectives search into a distant past of a young gun who made the block grow fast. Now those ducks who were cooked that came home to roast the suspects with All right, thanks, Mr. The Genius. Uh, <laughs> if you're in London this weekend, you gotta go see uh, take part in Monster Weekend. At the uh, the British Museum, they're having outdoor showings of the uh, the Hammer films, uh, Dracula and uh, the Mummy, with uh, uh, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, and you can actually uh, go into the museum and see all kinds of cool, like scary exhibits, like mummies and stuff like that. Oh wow, that sounds like super fun. Uh, my pick this week it's a local one. Um, and it actually doesn't start until September 6th, so I'm kind of cheating here, but it's going to be a week-long uh, presentation at the Northwest Film Forum in Seattle of uh, Heaven's Gate. Uh, you know, tying this in a little bit with Ishtar last week, Heaven's Gate is one of those, uh, you know, epic bombs. It's a film that I've actually never seen. I've been really interested to see it, and Criterion just came out with that reissue of it. And I'm not afraid by the running time. I'm not afraid by any of it. I think it. It looks fun. Have you seen it? It's, it's fantastic. It's yeah. one of the, the great westerns. Yeah. I, I really want to see it. Um, so It's, it's playing... much better than The Deer Hunter. <laughs> it's playing September 6th through the 12th at uh, the Northwest Film Forum in Seattle. Uh, next week on the show, we are not going to be reviewing any movies. Instead, we're going to be talking about our hypothetical, if we had a sight and sound ballot this year, top 10 lists. Yes. So I'm, I'm, I'm still figuring out how I'm approaching that. Um, I, I'm starting to lean towards um, films that I think I champion that, you know, they're not the go-to picks, you know, but the ones that I, I feel like I cheerlead more than than other people do. Yeah, I haven't I haven't started at all. I'm still trying to decide which is going to occupy the, like, honorary Steve Gutenberg film <laughs> slot uh, on the list. So, you know, if you have any ideas, if you have, like, your top movie, your top ten, uh, feel free to send it our way. You can send us an email. Uh, our address is thegeorgesandershow at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at geosandershow. And you can leave us a comment on our website, thegeorgesandershow.blogspot.com. So, yeah, till next week, here's George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply.
as time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of day Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man And man must have his mate That no one can deny It's still the same old story A fight for love and glory A case of do or die The world Always welcome lovers as time.